0: From the clock tower at Mountaineer, this is the C.S. Lewis Book Club, and I'm Dan. And I'm Alex. We're C.S. Lewis enthusiasts, not
1: experts, just like you, so we can all talk on the same level.
0: And today we are going to cover The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, chapters 8 through 17. And watch out, spoiler alert, if you haven't read along with us so far, that's always the invite, is join the book club Jump in and read along, and you can always pick back up when you've read the chapter. So go do your homework. Okay, next week we will be starting Prince
1: Caspian, chapters 1 through 7. So, yeah, as soon as you're done here, go read. <laughs> go later. Yeah, go get in the book. So I want to do, start off, before we get into the second half of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, just do a little bit of housekeeping. We'd talked last week about the event that possibly inspired the wardrobe yeah and uh i was reading in a book by david c downing it's called into the wardrobe very aptly named uh and he he said that uh the reason c.s lewis added five different instances where he says it's very foolish (laughs) to close oneself into a wardrobe or to close the door into a wardrobe um is because owen barfield owen barfield's Daughter, That's a funny last name by the way. Barfield. <laughs> I've never thought about that. <laughs> so the dedication of the book is to Lucy Barfield. Yeah. Lucy I think is Owen Barfield's daughter. Okay. But his wife Maud was worried when she was reading through the the manuscript that kids would be would uh, lock themselves in wardrobes yeah. to get In, an it, in fact <laughs> a, apparently uh, one kid actually took a hammer to the back of a wardrobe okay. and tried to like break a hole to find you know i'm not sure if that's just legend or if that's something that you know actually happened as a result of kids being so excited
0: about possibly finding a portal to a new world in a wardrobe. This is tangential, but it reminds me of my three-year-old who we've let him get way too far into dinosaurs, which Alex loves if we ever find a way to get, <laughs> get right. into that. I approve. And all of a sudden we have a biting problem because dinos bite. Right. And so we're uh, squashing that one as we speak. So <laughs> Stay out of the wardrobe, stay away from the dinosaurs. Have you noticed every time a
1: kid tries to do, like, a dinosaur roar, they always do it, like, very nasal- Oh yeah. It's like, mmm. <laughs> it's this noise <laughs> that just gets, <laughs> it makes like the hairs on my back or my neck stand up. <laughs> Put them outside. Another uh, thing that I wanted to bring up before we get into the chapters is uh, an essay that C.S. Lewis wrote called Meditation in a Toolshed. I think we've talked about this before, just you and I, Dan, but um, in this essay, he's explaining his motivation well, he's not explaining it that way. He he just explains a mo a moment that he had while in a tool shed. Obviously, um, that kind of gives a little bit of understanding why he didn't like calling um, his writing allegory. And he'll say that, and you know, J.R. Tolkien the same thing. He says that his writing is not allegory, and but it kind of is, you know. Yeah. But they were uh, hesitant for people to think of it as allegory because they wanted you to get immersed in the story. And the, and in the essay, he, sa- he he says that while in a tool shed, the door of the shed closed on him and he was in darkness, except he saw a beam of light coming in through the top crack of the door. And he explains the difference between looking at the light and analyzing the light. And you can even describe what the light looks like. You know, he says that there's dust particles floating in it, right? And then he puts his eye into the light and through the light, he can see through the crack above the door and he can see a tree. He can see the leaves on the tree and, you know, 90 million miles away, he can see the sun, right? And then also looking, the the beam of light illuminates everything and that it touches as well. And he calls these differences, looking at the light, he calls contemplation, right? This is analysis. You Look at a, you read the book and you say, oh, what does this part mean? What is he trying to say here, right? Yeah. You get really analytical. You try to explain it. You know, you have to put on your professor's cap.
0: My favorite cap.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wear one of those at, at least <laughs> once a day. But And he doesn't like that. He feels like even in this, in scripture, reading, just immersing yourself in scripture is the best way to learn from it. Not trying to analyze it, but just being there. It's kind of like, I use Duolingo. Do you use Duolingo to learn languages? I have, yeah. One of the difficult parts of that is uh, it doesn't teach you a lot of rules. you just kind of well, exposed.
0: What, well, this, what this reminds me of is just, I mean, how often was Jesus when he spoke to Pharisees saying, hey, spirit of the law, like you're missing the point because you're so tied up in what the sentences are saying. And it sounds like C.S. Lewis, similar feel of guys, lose yourself in the story and it'll be beneficial. And yes, it does. Tied to a lot of important things that he believed religiously.
1: Right. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, Pharisees were analysts, right? They're trying to explain yeah. everything to everybody to make sure they do it all the right way. Yeah. And I think that's what Lewis is doing.
0: I love that. Yeah. Lose so, yourself in the music. So I get a little
1: worried as we're talking about this. Are we getting too analytical? And I'm... We might be. <laughs> I'm definitely more... I'll throw a penalty flag. Good. <laughs> yeah, you do that. You'll have to keep me in check because I'm a little too much of the of the contemplator and the alter- or the the other side of that dichotomy, that when you put your eye into the beam of light, he calls that enjoyment. Yeah. Right? And so that's what we want. The reason, even reason we're talking about these books is we want people to enjoy them. I've enjoyed them. I've read these books so, so much that it's like, I don't know what they mean, but I know it's changed me. I know that experiencing Aslan through the book, go and get on the stone table, right? It's, it yeah. has helped me... Uh, understand what love is yeah. without without me trying to say now is that what lions should do? <laughs> <laughs> A lion would not so, have done that. <laughs> so hopefully <laughs> if anything as we go through uh, the books hopefully it gets you into reading the books themselves instead of trying to figure out if we've f- cracked the code yeah. to what C.S. Lewis was trying to write.
0: Yeah I like that. That's why I'm here. So what we're going to do next, we're covering today, like we said, chapters 8 through 17. Uh, Edmund sneaks away to the witch's house. Uh, The other Pevensey children go to the stone table where they meet the great lion Aslan. And Aslan ransoms Edmund and rescues the stone prisoners from the witch's white house, while Peter leads Aslan's army against the white witch and her followers. One one place I want to dive into with you that I thought was interesting, uh, Su- Susan asked Aslan. Uh, so Mister Beaver is telling the kids about Aslan, and it's kind of this. It, I like first it starts out, and it's hey, no one's gonna, no one stands a chance against the White Witch, because the kids are like, we should go save him, and they're like, no, don't even, don't even try, you'll lose. But don't worry, there's hope. Aslan is exists, and the kids are asking questions, and as the, once they understand that he's a lion. Uh, both Lucy and Susan are asking questions and they're essentially saying like, is he safe? Like, are we going to be okay? It's an, it's a lion. And I love it because both Mrs. Beaver and Mr. Beaver specifically says, of course he's not safe. (laughs) And I'm (laughs) mimicking the book. To me that, that section every time I've read this book, that's always a section that stands out to me. And I I think it's that I, part of it is around the idea that um, you know, we love a soft God, the idea of, of uh, love and peace. And I think there's a lot of focus on that nowadays. And, and I think love is a word that we misinterpret so often and things that are done out of love could be anything, but, um, and so there's that, that like, there's two sides, like, like God is great and terrible. Like Aslan is great because he's good And because his ultimate purposes are good and what he's going to do in this book is good, but he's also terrible and he's fierce and he is the strongest, most powerful force that exists in the book and that exists in the universe. And that's the way all the characters talk about him. And that's obviously the way the characters written, but tying into that. And we'll get to it later is just that anything contrasted with Aslan, I feel like in the book also just seems fleeting and like, it, it just no strength compares. And so I, I'd love to get your thoughts, just like how you've seen that same idea as far as he's not safe, but he's good. Yeah. Well, I think that
1: Lewis talks about life as being an adventure. And if you're going to go on an adventure, you can't be so preoccupied with safety. And I think our world, especially when we're consuming different forms of media or, you know, whenever we're putting, our child's care to some other person like at school you know you can they have to be worrying about liabilities and when you're totally governed by liability you can see why the phrase safety first becomes almost like the de facto rule Uh, but that's not true about any learning all learning requires um, risk and it requires being uncomfortable it requires uh, humility and doing something that you don't know if it will work out. And I mean, that's true with my kids. I mean, I'm not, uh, obviously you want to be safe. You want to be, uh, a place where your children can run for security. I think that's an important job as a parent, but I'm, I also put my kids in scenarios where they might not feel safe and maybe it's the safety that they, how they define safety. And for me, I know it's safe because I've got a little more control over the situation, but it doesn't feel safe to them, right? Hmm. They're going to have to um, go to school, you know, leave their parents and they're scared at the bus stop or whatever. Hmm. It's scary to them. And if I say safety first to them from the way that they're interpreting it, maybe they want to run back home. You know, they have to have some encouragement.
0: So do you think, do you think you get, I mean you intentionally put your kids into situations where they're less than safe. Like you allow them to balance on things and whatever that they could fall off of or whatever it is. And so I think maybe instilling in them that like we don't always play it perfectly safe and we do it in the name of doing something good. Like is there, I, I give them something to pursue that encourages them to take risk and good risk. Of course, you can't ever be 100% safe. Not in
1: anything. And so it becomes this this balance. You're you're making a cost benefit analysis. Is it worth um, putting your kid maybe in a, a situation where they don't feel safe? Of course it is, because they're going to learn. Now, don't be silly. Be prudent about it. And but even with us, eventually, you know, you and I both have young children. Eventually, we're going to have to let them go, you yeah. know, into a world that's not as safe as we are. And so it's our responsibility to kind of. Pre- prepare them for that world and help them take responsibility for their own safety. Um, yeah, life's an adventure. It's full of risk. Uh and I think Aslan here, that's, that's the beaver's reassurance is he's not safe in the way we think he's safe, but he's good. So he's safe in the way he knows he's safe, right? Aslan has more assurance of the adventure, the Pevens kids are going to go on than they do. And so it's trusting, it's yielding. It requires, you know, safety is not yielding. Safety is protective, it's defensive. But you kind of just need to let go and let God, right? <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> well, also, when, when we use the word good, that that's I just like love. It's another one of those terms where we can have very different ideas of what good is. But that's not something I think we'll one day get to when we get to mere Christianity. But like C.S. Lewis believed like, when you use logical deduction, this underlying idea of there is a good, and we all fundamentally at some level agree on there is a good. Like when Mr. Beaver uses it here, Aslan is good and you can trust that. Like like you said, let, let God or like, you know, let go, trust in this goodness in, in order in order to give that trust. You know what I mean? Like, you're you're asking for trust, but if someone asks for trust, well, what are you giving me so that I can trust you intelligently? Yeah, but, Does that make sense? Right.
1: Uh, I, and I think sometimes, this is obviously addressed in a lot of C.S. Lewis books, but sometimes you are you can't just analyze your way into knowing what is good, but you can kind of, and this is where he'll lead to, or yield to the way you feel. Not necessarily your emotions about it, but um, in another book, uh, that hideous strength one of the one of the protagonists um he's been following this bad crowd and later when he realizes that he's gotten carried away gotten tied up in some pretty evil stuff he realized he he never even liked these people he just liked what being around them said about himself it was the inner circle the inner ring uh, as lewis calls it yeah at some point you can't predict the future well, at any point you can't predict the future. And I, and I think what Lewis is trying to help us feel here is you just gotta go for it. You gotta define what's good for yourself. You have to trust people as, you know, the, the parents in your life, uh, mentors, God through scripture to see what's good. And just, even when it's uncomfortable, risk yourself to follow that. Hmm. So I think that is that is a big theme that will come up again and again, is the adventure of life is not going to be safe. So you need to be willing to risk um, yourself a little bit to become what you, you can become.
0: Yeah, I like that.
1: So yeah, so they're talking at the beaver's table, Susan asks if he's safe, and they notice that Edmund's gone, right? And he's, he's so focused, he's addicted to Turkish delight, right? He's, he's trying to satisfy these cravings and he's convincing himself, even though he's hearing all these bad things about the witch and he's, and he's hearing good things about Aslan. And you have these people who, or, you know, these beavers that are defining goodness and they seem trustworthy, right? But he's focused on himself and because that he finds a way to escape. But not, after, not until after he could do some damage because he hears the, all of the plans that yeah. they have to go to the stone table to meet Aslan. And he leaves forgetting a coat. He's just shivering. He's miserable on his path, walking through the snow to the witch's castle. And the way that he comforts himself is by telling, him, telling himself how awful Peter is. And he, keeps, he hates Peter more and more because Peter has become this proof to him that, um, I mean, Peter's his competition. He's so worried about feeling like he's the smartest and he's a grown-up and is, he's got this other older brother who's not approving of his behavior. Yeah, And I think this is kind of a psychological truism that I have to remind myself all the time. He keeps blaming Peter. He's even blaming Peter for the way that he's uncomfortable in that moment. It obviously, is not Peter's fault. When they catch him in a lie saying that he'd never been to Narnia, you know, that awful nasty scene from the from the last chapters um he says i'll pay you all out for this right for yeah. what for him lying right you can see this blame instinct to defend yourself it's the insecurity and you're just trying to defend um you're trying to keep the truth about yourself as far away as from your you as possible and so it becomes projected on other people he's really blaming peter for what he doesn't like about himself because blame is always the result of shame. When you feel, when you feel good about yourself, when you're confident in yourself, even when bad things happen, you kind of just shrug it off. You know, it's not your fault. You know, you you can learn new things and try it, try to try it again. And so anytime something's out of your control, you let it be out of your control. But it's when you start bl- when you start blaming yourself, which is what causes shame, you think that your worth is dependent on uh, the way people feel about you. You think it's uh, dependent on how good you're doing the things that you think you should be doing, right? Uh, once you start feeling inadequate that way, you'll start looking around desperately and you don't have to think about this. It happens naturally. You look around desperately for somebody who can, who can make you feel better by it being their fault, hmm. right? He's obviously doing this, and I do this all the time. Every time I feel inadequate, I feel insecure, especially like with my wife, because that's the relationship in which there's, you know, the most the things that bring up the most shame. I think are the things that are most intimate about you, yeah. right? And yeah. who knows all those things? Well, my wife, my wife knows everything about my character, and so everything that I feel is. Um, about my character that I don't feel is appropriately developed, she knows. Yeah. Wouldn't it be great if <laughs> it wasn't my fault, but it were her fault? Yeah. That would be great. And sometimes I try to make her feel like it's her fault. Those are the moments where I need to remember, oh, am I being like Edmund right now? Am I walking to the witch's house? You know, you get in fights with your spouse. And where are you going with this? What's the possible result? Oh, maybe you can be a king In the witch's castle and, you know, Peter will be your servant or whatever, you know, And, and you can see these motivations, where are you going with this? And you really have to just like humble yourself. And part of the humbling yourself is love yourself. Say it's okay. What I've done before. I'm still, I still have value. I still have worth so I don't need to blame anybody else about where I am. I have my acceptance. And then I can say, I'm sorry. And as soon as you do that, it's so much easier to say you're sorry, right? It's yeah. it's so much easier to seek um, forgiveness than to, than to seek um, justification.
0: Yeah, I love that. And just the husband and wife example, obviously, I think that probably hits home for me just in that when you have those situations where maybe your wife is helping you see or your spouse is helping you see um, one of those underdeveloped areas. (laughs) And if I can sit with that and look at that underdeveloped area of myself and just kind of feel the uncomfortable feelings that come when you you can have a little bit clearer perspective on some of your weaknesses and not make it about, well, you, (laughs) you know, like put it outside, blame, push it outside of yourself – just sit with it. Be like, yeah, maybe there's things that you do that make me behave this way or do whatever is bothering you, but like, stop it and sit with it for a while. Like, sit with it for a while is something that I feel like uh has become a useful phrase when when something's hard, something's grating. It's like, no, sit with it by myself, meditate, think about it for a while, and you'll get the most value out of it. And then, and then choose your responses and whatever your actions are accordingly. Hopefully you're as part of that is self-improvement or whatever it is. But yeah,
1: I love that. Yeah. And while you're sitting with it, don't be Edmund sitting with it. Don't, don't sit with it and figure out all the ways you can hate other people and you can blame other people. Sit with it with, with self-love. Yeah. Maybe some, some affirmations tell yourself you're good enough and realizing that you are no more the, the main character than your wife is right I and mean, you know
0: in this situation right Your or your spouse um, That Um that's a good point because maybe i uh i might have a tendency to be uh let it tear tear me down or think less of myself because i'm sitting in it and just being like yep i i am terrible right <laughs> versus being <laughs> versus a little bit of affirmation saying like you know
1: Yeah. You can sit in the light or you can sit in the swamp, you know, so you need to make sure that you're sitting in the light and, and really believe that you're good enough and you're, and you're worth love. And also realizing that when, when you understand you're not just the main character, your wife's or your spouse's and not just a a character in your story, you're a character in their story just as much. You can see that then when they start acting blamey, they start showing the Edmund quality here. Um, that maybe all they need to do is sit in the light and help them go to the light. right. Tell them why they're, they're deserving of your love or even not deserving of, of your love. Maybe that's hard for them to believe, but you can say you love them, even if they don't feel deserving of it. Right. And And that's really what, I mean, we'll see what happens later with Edmund, but he's brought, he's brought around, he comes around not because, well, he does suffer a lot.
0: Yeah. And C.S. Lewis spends pages talking, or I feel like it's a decent chunk talking about how painful the journey was to the witch's house. And then the sleigh ride, it's like, I could write forever about how painful this ride was. Like, I love how he really yeah, wants, well you could wants tell the reader to read know, like, nothing about this was enjoyable. Right. You could tell Lewis himself had had some pretty, uh,
1: long like, sojourns like, in the wilderness like, with maybe some
0: sins or right. misdeeds he didn't like. First
1: person perspective on suffering. Yeah. 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 Right, and so yeah, suffering comes, but it doesn't come at the hand of As or the paw of Aslan. The paw, right? Nice. From him, it's just nice. love.
0: Right? <laughs> uh, one, one other thing, I if I remember right, he thinks about Peter and the blame, and then he then it also says he would have he was about to turn back if it weren't for him starting to imagine. Well, when I'm king, I'm gonna do this in Narnia and change this. And da. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Any thoughts on? Like there was blaming and then also there was something was soothing, self-soothing about being able to think about himself. Yeah, what
1: came to mind when I was reading that is just
0: uh, I think religious people
1: are often accused of wishful thinking right of believing stuff something that's just so magical and obviously not true and obviously their motivation is because they want a heaven to exist and they and they populate heaven with all their turkish delights right they, yeah. with all the favorite things that they want and but that's not what you see in the behavior of of truly religious people is or re- religious people who are religious with a with a um a benevolent god as as kind of their their focus of worship uh, they start to emulate that benevolent God, right? And they serve more, they they donate to charity more. You know, yeah. you see, uh, they're often really, religious communities are often just, even from atheists described as people who are very kind or at least, you know, yeah. safe, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm not sure if that's a compliment <laughs> at this point. <laughs> but you can see that the wishful thinking of somebody who is just so self-focused... I'm not saying that they're not necessarily religious or this is an atheism versus religiosity type problem. Yeah. But religion t- brings you out of yourself. It makes you focus your, 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 puts your goal on something beyond you.
0: Can we put true religion in front? Of- sure. <laughs> yeah, I, you're yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, but there's, I, there's a-
1: true religion and then there's some, you know, obviously you, that's not what this podcast <laughs> is about, but something that helps you focus on something beyond you and is yeah. focused on service. But when you're focused on yourself, right, that's the wishful thinking. Wishful thinking is the story really is about you. Yeah. Right. I'm. Mean, you can think of the, the Übermensch from Thus saith Zarathustra, the, the, the Friedrich <laughs> Nietzsche book. That's kind of a funny title. But a lot of the modern philosophies about that have led to the, the narcissism of our time is this idea that nothing matters. So do what you want. Right. And o- the only way for you to be this powerful, um, important person is to stop caring about the morality that society imposes on you.
0: Makes you the best negotiator, whoever cares less. <laughs> right? right, and <laughs> C.S.
1: Lewis knew <laughs> Nietzsche very well. So a lot of his villains are kind of based on this uh, nihilism of, of Friedrich Nietzsche, Not yeah. that Nietzsche himself was that much of a villain. But the result of his philosophies have led to a lot of evil things. And he, some of the villains, the witch is... Totally focused on herself. She and she's doesn't she in another book will say um, that her she's above common rules. Yeah, because she's the queen. Right. And you can start to see that people even without any justification of being above the common people or the sheeple or however you want to label them justify to themselves. That's wishful thinking. Yeah. And so you see that in Edmund's journey.
0: I love that. Then we come to
1: this part that's kind of been criticized. Lewis has been criticized. He was even criticized by Jared Tolkien for this segment. And in order to understand it, I think, I don't know if you need to understand it because we're not trying to analyze it. We're trying to just enjoy it. Right.
0: Father Christmas comes. I'm going to be honest. This part just strikes me as weird too. Okay. I, it... I feel, I felt that when I'm like, and do, you think, Santa Claus. do you think it would <laughs> strike a child as weird? No, I don't think so. Why not? I mean, I, 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 did mentioned I just watched the movie last night with my kids and Santa Claus shows up and my kids are like cool yeah <laughs> he's here I think the movie <laughs> so uh, the
1: <laughs> the live action movie you're talking about the most recent one yeah yeah I think they do a really good job with Father Christmas there uh, Michael Ward has a book called Planet Narnia he even has two versions of it one that's even a little more a little easier for people who haven't been you know studying too much about C S Lewis or or medieval cosmology called
0: the Narnia. You mean one for me and one for you? <laughs> <laughs> okay.
1: Oh, well, the Narnia Code, the <laughs> Narnia Code and Planet Narnia are basically the same book. One's kind of just an abridged version um, where he talks about each book being written with a cosmology, a medieval cosmology type theme. And that's just the different planets, right? So the theme of the line, that the witch in the wardrobe, according to what Michael Ward has discovered, because he's he is a C.S.
0: Lewis expert, and at this point is this pretty accepted, like yes. he, he nailed it. Yeah.
1: And if you read the book, it's like one of those things where there's no way. I mean, he brings up evidence after evidence and goes through yeah. uh, most of his writing. Cool. But especially the Narnia books that Jupiter, Jupiter is kind of the theme from the, uh, of the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe um, from the medieval cosmo- cosmological perspective. And Jupiter is all about royalty. The word Jovian or Jovial is a reference to Jupiter. Jove is the medieval, you know, guardian spirit of, of Jupiter. And um there's no like common mythological figure that in in Lewis's mind like embodied jovial Jovianism. That makes as, me think as, I would have thought of Santa Claus of, when you say jovial. That's right. So <laughs> yeah. think think of think of um kingliness Lordliness, right? Yeah. Something like Jupiter in the sky, compared to all the other planets, right? It's bright. It's big. It's it's the ruler.
0: You were either going to bring in Zeus, or you're going to bring in Santa Claus, and someone going to have an opinion. That's about right. It. Jupiter <laughs>
1: is the name of Zeus in um in in Latin, yeah. and Zeus is the Greek version. So exactly, Zeus is that. And so if Zeus had showed up here. It would have made just as much sense. Although but,
0: I wasn't aware that that Santa Claus was a philanderer, but apparently, <laughs> what's that? <one>? No, oh, <laughs> I was just, the, the Zeus. If comparison. it was Zeus, I,
1: I think Santa Claus was the right pick. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Saying. So if you want to, if you want some a uh, child to feel the spirit of Zeus or whatever that is, Santa Claus, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah, and so he's he's writing to children he, and he's also writing for enjoyment, not for analysis. if you get caught caught up in the contemplation or the analysis of Santa Claus showing up in a and why you know, why is it even called Christmas? Why do they say it's always winter and never Christmas when the witch is in power? Yeah. do you mean aslan miss right? Christ yeah. isn't a figure in this in this world. It's yeah. aslan. but he's not right, you know. Why did the animals speak English? Actually, there is a reason for that, but we'll get there later. I
0: was was actually going to say, well, you know, Santa Claus was found by a talking beaver,
1: so which one's (laughs) weird? We don't know. (laughs) That's right. And realizing, imagine being in the mind of a child, and I was when I was exposed to these books. It made it didn't feel weird at all that Santa Claus came up. It was just, yes, you know, the the tides are turning, the witch's power is waning, Santa is here, right? And everything that good about Santa, and I'm not thinking about the Coca-Cola Santa, the American Santa. This is Father Christmas, and they yeah. do a really good job in the movie,
0: not making him Coca-Cola Santa. That's okay. right,
1: and and he even talks with like this authoritative voice, and it makes them feel. I think in the book it says that they they it made them feel happy, but they were kind of nervous with him because he he had such a venerable presence. Yeah. So I love that part. I really like the idea of bringing. Father Christmas, in. obviously I'm partial to everything that C.S. Lewis decided, and <laughs> and a lot of people think it's funny. I actually got into this not an argument, but a back and forth with a uh, another podcaster out just on comments or something. But they were ta- they were reviewing this book and said that uh, you know Father Christmas is, makes the C.S. Lewis uh, less of a serious read than J.R. Tolkien, and if you've read Lord of the Rings, Tom Bombadil is a little weirder than even. Father Christmas being talked about. I don't know if it's, maybe maybe it's we'll funny cut this part. criticize
0: that much just because uh, it's Narnia. Like at the end, of the, if this was like some plan of, of Santa Claus in one of his more serious writings, it's one thing. But I, I know this the joke. Literally, it was <laughs> it was Narnia. It was tongue in cheek. It <sighs> yeah, was yeah. you know it was
1: it was lighthearted. But um, yeah, you know the authors bring in things that they either are important to them or think that will get the message across, and if you're a kid, I think this gets the message across. So I really like that. And then he gives them the gifts. Um, he has that line. These are tools, not toys. I think that's, yeah, that's something that, you know, I stopped the movie and, and, you know, wanted to talk to my kids about that, the difference between tools and toys. And, yeah. And I, and I think that, that Santa, the idea, or let's say the spirit of Christmas or, or who father Christmas could be for children is not a bearer of toys but a bearer of responsibilities yeah right and as as your kids grow up and they outgrow santa that they don't have to go ruining it for everybody because they're so smart but they can go participate in you know the spirit of christmas through santa and, and help each other
0: out yeah all right we'll take a quick break and then jump back to the last uh the last piece Welcome back. Uh, We're going to jump into when, so the kids have traveled through the woods and it's the first time that they come up to Aslan. So uh, a couple just raw feelings I had as I I was reading this part is one, I feel like you're introduced to Aslan pretty quickly. It's just kind of like, and here he is. I mean, there's some fan fairies surrounded by other animals and whatever, but to me, there wasn't like a lot of mystery around it. It was just... They went through the woods and they met Aslan.
1: Yeah, you could almost make the whole book this crescendo into Aslan at the very end. Yeah. But that's not what it wasn't. happens here.
0: Yeah, it was just, yeah, this is who it is and this is who's going to save us. And I, I, I don't know, there's something cool about the matter of fact uh, way that he's introduced. Um, but specifically, when the children see him, they it talks about, once again, this idea of it. He it was hard for them to believe that something could be good and terrible at the same time and when they meet him and they see him they they obviously kind of have that moment where they're kind of pushing one person ahead they're like no you go no ladies first and then <laughs> peter finally walks up to him and um anyways I, I i think i'd love to get your thoughts on on good and terrible and and that moment when they're just first meeting aslan and well, if there's anything instructive or
1: yeah can you see that if you're a child
0: needing to be able to experience
1: good and terrible you have to first be told that safety isn't the priority right Yeah. And, um, you know, terrible, obviously the word means different things to different people. Terrible, a terror, right? If the terror is directed toward me, then it can't be good and terrible. Yeah. Right. But powerful, right. he's all, and there's all obviously scriptural illusion here. The word terrible is we used in the scripture in this way. Um, the great and terrible day of the Lord and and so on.
0: Um, but I, li- I like that you always, a couple of times while we've been talking, you keep turning it back to, well, think of how a kid and think of how a kid. Mm-hmm. And and now all of a sudden I'm thinking of like when I was a kid and going to m- having to like meet somebody or an a, an adult or whatever else and, and remembering feeling so nervous of having to like walk up to this person who for whatever reason was impressive or a little bit scary. Um, but also... trusting that they were good because my parents told me they were good or whatever else. But anyways, I I like that bringing it back to like, this is through the eyes of children and C.S. Lewis, you know, children, that perspective, I think was probably really important to him as he wrote the book.
1: Yeah. And and we're all children relative to the next phase of our lives and our character. Right. So yeah, you could, you could see the folly in telling your children every time you feel nervous, it's bad. Right? No, the, the biggest developmental experiences and phases of their lives will be full of awkwardness and nerves and just kind of like doing it anyway, yeah. doing the right thing anyway, whether it's the right thing morally or whether it's going to college or whether it's starting a new career, you're going to be a freshman over and over and over again through life. I feel like that happens to me all the time. Even doing this podcast it makes me feel really nervous. And if I just said, no, if it makes me nervous, it's bad. We wouldn't even be doing this. Yeah.
0: And I I think that's one of the, because no one actually feels like they're getting older. It's like things from outside of us signal to us that we're getting older. Yeah. And one of those is when someone's interacting with you and all of a sudden you realize like they've come into this feeling like, oh, this person has a lot of experience and, and, you know, like my fate rests upon how this interaction goes. And all of a sudden you're like, uh, I'm just a kid like you are. I don't know if you should put this much weight on this, this interaction. Um, but yeah, the same type of feeling. And so then this, this is a little part. Uh, it doesn't have to be a big deal, but I just thought it was interesting. Like Edmund goes into the witch's castle and he sees the stone lion and at first it totally terrifies him. And then he gets closer and realizes it's stone and then draws on its face and is like, nah, 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 you know, like making fun of him. And I, I just thought this was interesting. First of all, this is probably reading way too far into it, but I was like, is the stone lion like a prophet? Because it's, you know, it's another lion in the world right. of lions. And then like that... Edmund at first is terrified just by the fact that it exists, and then tries to soothe himself and say, "Oh, see, the witch has probably already turned then into stone." Like we're right. we're we're good. anyways. That were wishful thinking again, right? Wishful thinking, yeah. yeah.
1: But just yeah. Well, I think the line in the book is um, that he mistakes his relief for bravery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can see that you can see that <laughs> in our culture, right? Every time somebody's trying to like have control over somebody else, you know, and let's say it's on social media. There's not a lot of, um, there's not a lot of risk when you're saying something behind the anonymity of a computer screen, right? So you could say things without negative effects. And so that relief that nobody can hold you to account to the things that you say makes a lot of people feel brave, but it's not bravery. In fact, it's a form of cowardice. Right? You see the cowardice in Edmund to say, ah, ha make believe this is actually Aslan. Aslan. I was right all along and uh, everybody else was bad and stupid, right? And, yeah. and, and you can see that that's kind of the tricks of the witch, right? One of the things that is said about the witch is that it was part of her power to make things look like what they, what they aren't. And you can see, you can feel brave when you're being cruel feels yeah. like a good t-shirt tricks of the witch. On, <laughs> <laughs> on. Yeah, what well you and you and you can feel smart when you're when you're being a bully and you can be, you know, there's there's ways of interpreting almost every vice
0: as some self-centered virtue, right? Yeah. Also, fun thought experiment or another podcast someday is who would C. S. Lewis be on social media today? <laughs> would he be there at all? I don't know. Uh, I
1: do I do follow a social media account that is like C. S. Lewis, and every once in a while they're they'll quote something and I'm like, that is not C. S. Lewis at all. <laughs> Stop. <Yeah. it. laughs>
0: I like that. Yeah.
1: But what do I know? Yeah. So that so he's he's with the witch. He realizes, Edmund realizes that uh as, as the as the witches Really upset about him coming without his brothers, brother and sisters. Um, maybe she isn't as as um, Magnanimous. Loving, right? <laughs> as
0: he wanted to pretend she was, and it it's really a harsh. She drops all pretense immediately. It's that's like a, that's right. Give him crusty bread and throw him in the sleigh, and let's take him somewhere. That's right.
1: He stops being useful to her, and yeah. his his value to her is just how he can she can use him. And she yeah. doesn't want to give him any pleasures now that she doesn't have to. It was all just a tool. She yeah. was using him. Um, and then you kind of contrast that going back to the other kids coming in and meeting Aslan. And I think going, jumping back and forth between these parts in the book, it, it just shows this juxtaposition of these different characters, like the witch and, and Aslan. Uh, Aslan brings Peter up to... Um, Look over the the a cliff, or you know, he could see across the country and Paraval. That's yep. right, the shining the shining castle on the seaside. And he says he tells Peter he's going to be the king. Yeah. And immediately, what happens?
0: They the horn. The, they hear the horn. And he has to go kill. Yeah, that's right. So the,
1: the the gift that Father Christmas gave Susan was a horn that whenever she blew it, help would come. And so as soon as Peter has this responsibility, which seems great, right? This, you'll be king. Great. Okay. What does that mean?
0: I didn't think about that. It's it's immediate. It's, you're a king. Now, welcome to the responsibility of the king. That's right. He's
1: immediately has to prove himself to some degree. And I'm not sure if to think about it as proving himself, but that goodness and and what you want comes with responsibility.
0: But Aslan says to him, he says, let the king earn his... Uh, spurs I spurs think. or something mm-hmm. yeah like it yeah it's it's
1: go earn it that's like, right so he comes down and there's the wolves but the, the the chief of the guard or the witches police Malgrim. Yeah. in the in the British um uh publication Malgrim is called fenris wolf which, which is the name of a, fenris wolf is from Norse mythology he's actually the wolf that I think kills Odin I'm not sure though Huh. But he's alluding to that. I'm not sure why the name changed. I'm not sure if uh Malgrim means something different. Anyway, they're attacking he and one of his other wolves, so there's two wolves, uh, attack the girls and Aslan subdues the other one the one wolf, and then it's Malgrim and, and Peter Peter-faced. and they have to fight. And it's not a long drawn out battle. Huh. C.S. Lewis is not worried about, you know, the the exciting back and forth. They're winning and losing <laughs> the, the and...
0: opposite of every born movie out there. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Let's spend it's... half the movie just <laughs>
1: watching blow by blow. Yeah. Uh, in fact, Peter comes up to him and the wolf howls cause he can't help it. Cause you know, he's full of rage or whatever and pounces on him and, and Peter stabs him in the heart and even says like, I think, I think CS Lewis makes combat like this look awful for a reason. Like, he doesn't know if the the wolf's dead, and the teeth are knocking on his head, or something, you know. And it's just this mess, and it's not glamorous. I think he wants to take away the glamour of that's cool. combat. Yeah. He doesn't want kids to be coming that way, like running around trying, you know, like when my kids watch superhero movies, they run around pre- pretending to fight each other. I was like, stop, <laughs> stop fighting, like. <laughs> I know it seems like playing, but it's, it's different. And, and I think he was worried about that. So he makes it, and he obviously he'd fought in a war and it's not glamorous. It's awful. But anyway, he, he kills the wolf. You know, there's a lot of tears and Lewis even reminds that in Narnia crying about an event that's really overwhelming and possibly traumatic is is not looked down on. And I thought that was kind of nice for him to say to, for him to say to my kids, you know, as we're reading this and then he's Peter is dubbed Sir Peter Wolfsbane. And that's meaningful to me. I actually have a son who has a middle name because of this. And obviously Peter in this moment is something that you, who doesn't want their kid to be Peter. And sometimes I'd read through this and it didn't have much meaning, but then having kids and my oldest is a, is a boy so it's easier to make that connection with Peter, and then you see, you know, Peter called to this to come rescue his sisters, and he, you know, he's scared and he's nervous. It's not safe, but yeah. he does the right thing, and yeah. it's it's almost overwhelmingly emotional um, for me to to think about that. And so it's who you know who doesn't want their kid to be Peter, yeah. But sometimes your kids an Edmund, and that's okay too, because what happens with Edmund? Aslan talks with Edmund. He says, "We don't know what Aslan said. I'm not sure." You know that
0: kind of is. And he says, oh, "I don't want you to talk to him about like anything that's past. It's gone, right. right? Right." And then I love my. I think I texted you right when I read this part. But one of my favorites was when it talks about the witch shows up and and Aslan's talking to her and he's and the witch says something derogatory or something to, threatening to Edmund, and. It says, Edmund didn't pay any attention to her. He just looked at Aslan and was quiet and has some line about, oh, I'll have to look it up. Well, I I did look it up because when you texted me, I actually found where that is. And I I love that
1: part, uh, you know, I think this shows, I'm not sure what this shows. I just, I know that there's truth in here and we don't have to, we don't (laughs) have to like, you know, pick it to pieces. But I do want to read that quote. It's chapter 13 in the book that I'm reading out of it's page 155. It's when the witch comes to the lion, wants to meet with uh, Aslan, and, he, and she says, you "Now I'm quoting, you have a traitor there, Aslan, said the witch. Of course, everyone present knew that she meant Edmund, but Edmund had got past thinking about himself after all he'd been through. Yeah. And after the talk he'd had that morning, he just went on looking at Aslan. It didn't seem to matter what the witch said. And I think that shows like a real conversion if you want to put it in those terms, but he's, he's, he knows more than anybody now, the real truth between the difference of the witch and the lion. And he's, he just wants to look to Aslan.
0: I don't know. It's maybe we don't need to talk about it anymore. It's just, there's truth there, right? Yeah. I love it. So I think we should spend a minute on this stone table. Yeah. Um, this is, this is a big one, so I'm going to let you kick off. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, an, another t- time where we probably shouldn't get too analytical about this, but I, I love um, what I, I feel like my kids are hearing when they have Aslan, who welcomes Susan and Lucy to accompany him as they're going. They don't know where. Yeah. And he had made a deal with the witch to, so that she wouldn't need to to kill Edmund nobody really knows what that is. And, and he, and Aslan doesn't tell anybody. He just walks off and, uh, and they see him walking away in the middle of the night. And then all of a sudden there's these, all these awful creatures gathering around the stone table and the girls are hidden, but they, but Aslan, you know, says for them to wait and hide and they must not do anything. They just have to watch. And he goes up to these, Awful creatures that I, I'm not sure if there's any symbolism or what the symbolism is of all the followers of the witch, hags, yeah, and, uh, ghouls and ghouls creatures and, that
0: he can't tell you about or your parents won't lead, let you read this book. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. He says that, and, yeah. and I
1: like the the way that the movie depicts them. I think that's a, I, th- I think they do a really good job. Um, and anyway, they tie him up, and and the witch is like so triumphant. She even says, "Fool, the fool came." Right, yeah. like. He's, he, he's living up to his promise. She doesn't understand what this could possibly, is he that stupid (laughs) that he thinks that, um, that she won't then. And he, she even tells him as she's about to kill him. And if obviously I'm going to go kill Edmund after this, after you're gone. What's going to keep me from doing that? Monologues.
0: Right. Because she's so. (laughs) Evil just can't help it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Just monologuing. (laughs) Um, she can't understand the deep magic, right? Yeah. That's what uh, that's what Aslan says
0: later. So really quick on that. Before, what, when the witch is going through the forest with Edmund on the way to the stone table, there's this interaction with the dwarves. I think they come across on the, on the animals that are celebrating Christmas and they turn to stone, whatever. And then it's like, they're talking about Aslan and the witch essentially kind of says, um, well, if he's here, then whether there's three people on the thrones or four or whatever the prophecy is, it doesn't really matter, like, Aslan's here, we lost. Yeah. And the dwarf is same thing. They're both just going back and forth about, like, well, how do we play this game if Aslan's here because we already lost. Right. And then the witch says something like, well, maybe he'll leave and then we can go back to, like, with our evil plan. And it it just seems, once again, it kind of sets up that, like, in, in comparison to Aslan, everything is just noise kind of feeling. And then also that inevitability of... Evil's going to lose. Like they'll they can have their day and they can do their thing, but like um so so do you, do you feel in that situation that that the witch actually was triumphant in a feeling like she won? Or I think she felt like that in that moment.
1: Right yeah. because she she said, you know, well as if Athlan's here, we can't win. She found she's like I'm thinking of like a chess game. You could have a bunch of pawns, but if the other if your opponent has a queen, <laughs> yeah. they can beat you. She thinks she's taken the queen, which is, and this metaphor is a little confusing, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is Aslan. And she can't understand why he would do that. But, you know, part of what Aslan is, is somebody who's willing to sacrifice himself for what he knows to be deeper good. And it is hard for him. It's not just like he knows the secret. And so he's going to go through this. It requires, what does he say? It all will be done when, 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 one yeah. of the girls asks him about if anything can be done about us, Edmund. And he says all will be done, but it's going to be harder than you think. Yeah, you know,
0: and it is hard
1: for him. And I think that's important.
0: Um, yeah, and it's yeah, and it's really hard. The whole walking up to the stone table, like the the girls talk about how you can sense his deep sadness, and you know, is, all the descriptions leading up to it is it's deeply sad. It's not it's not just a happy moment that's happening even though he knows the outcome yeah i think i think this
1: helps uh, a child understand what the love of god is willing to sacrifice you know a god that is intimately concerned about them you know i'm thinking of my children and um and won't use them as a tool like the witch is willing to use edmund yeah it's a it's it's heavy and it's it's beautiful, and it's one of those parts where, go back and read it again, it's pretty intense. So, yeah. once that happens, though, you can kind of see that the book, the conflict of the book is basically over, right?
0: Yeah, and that's that's actually another thing that stands out is just, I, I like to always see where an author uh, adds lots of detail and wants to go into, like, really focus on one area, and then another area zooms out. And like you mentioned with the battles, like, C.S. Lewis makes it really quick, doesn't really glorify it, but... When Aslan beats the white witch, it's like they show up, they say the battle's totally gruesome and the girls can't even watch, and Aslan jumps over and squashes the witch and it's over. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like pretty pretty quick for like there isn't this big build up and this big fight scene. It's just done. Once again, the finality of like once Aslan says it's over. It's over <laughs> and we move on. But he still gives responsibility to the kids, right? It was he Edmund. He
1: let them battle and lead the army and everything else. That's right. It was Edmund who broke the witch's wand that was turning everybody into stone. It was cool. yeah. Peter that was, you know, in hand-to-hand combat with the witch when Aslan showed up. And then after, even Aslan reminds Lucy, like, go to them, like... You have this cordial that you got from Father Christmas that can heal anybody. So she starts like really energetically running around and healing everybody. And even after the battle's over and you're like, oh, we won. That doesn't mean that you can just sit back and relax. You still have responsibility. There's even responsibility in victory. There's, it's not just about now we're safe. It's we're working to help each other all the time.
0: It's one of the only times I think you see Lucy make the wrong decision or where Aslan gets upset with her and is like, stop letting your care for your brother trump your care for all the other people who are suffering. And is their life more valuable than Edmund's? No, like go. Right. I really like that. Yeah. Yeah. I like
1: that. Whenever Aslan gives the kids responsibility, you know, as a dad, I'm like, good. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Because I want my life to be easy (laughs) and my kids to do all the hard things. Um, So then they're, they're made kings and queens of Narnia, right? right. And then th- further descriptions as Aslan leaves and the kids are kind of confused. Why is he leaving? Or, you know, Lucy's talking to, to Mr. Tumnus. They're leaving and, uh, or he's leaving and Tumnus reminds her that, you know, he'll come and go, that's, he's not a tame lion. And that line, I th- I think is interesting because it, it comes back later and yeah. it, and it's kind of that, that same sort of thing is don't try to understand everything about God. You're not God.
0: Uh, Yeah, I I love it because in in each book, Aslan acts totally differently. He's never reliably like the same. He's reliable in some ways. In his goodness, right? But in how he interacts and where he shows up and where he doesn't, which I I think C.S. Lewis, when he talks about God in other areas, that's exactly the experience that he personally had and what he thinks is part of the experience is is there's not a predictable way that God is working with all of us or um, working in our lives. It's on his timing and it's in his way, right. but it's predictable in it's goodness and power.
1: Right, and then there's the line that I think is it's just kind of poetic. Uh, well, it's not it's not so poetic. It's just you know C.S. Lewis showing that he's the narrator of this um, of the book where he's talking about they're they're on the seashore. C.S. Lewis loved the beach. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and he says you could they could hear the 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 cry of the seagulls. And he says, Oh, if, have you heard it before? Can you remember? And he's just trying to talk to a kid, like, have you heard things that just like make you feel happy? And that's one that makes him feel happy. And so helping a kid just feel instead of just reading a story, he's bringing the kids that are, that he's talking to into his enjoyment of even just the, even just simple things. And I, and I think that's what the book means to me is it just this place where I can enjoy um deep meanings in simple stories and Lewis is just so good at that at that art
0: all right we'll take a quick break
1: welcome back thanks for reading with us yeah uh the lion the witch and the wardrobe I think it has even less popularity than it deserves uh, and it's funny. There's uh, we've been talking about kind of the um, the live action, the most recent live action movie of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. But I grew up with these uh, BBC cartoon versions, those. and they're yeah. actually much more faithful to the way that the book goes. Yeah. Like all the dialogue is exactly the same, and and I think they just tried to do everything exactly how the book is. And when the witch comes on upon the partying foxes and squirrels, you know that had just Father Christmas had just given them um their Christmas gifts and they're they're you know they're finally partying. They're Winter's over, yeah. spring's coming, you know. Um the witch comes up and is so angry. She's angry not necessarily at them, but it becomes necessary. Uh, she's angry at them, you know. Yeah. As as evil does, wants to make everybody re- responsible for what's upsetting you,
0: and tells them if you are willing to lie about this, I'll let you off. Yeah, the hook. she's willing to like, be lied to me, yeah. so then I can feel better about yeah. this. <laughs> that's right. She doesn't care <laughs> about the that.
1: truth. One of the
0: things that uh,
1: this is the line that's all, that's living in my head, especially around Christmas time is the fox in the cartoon when she says, who gave these things to you? You know, this meal or whatever. The fox says, Father Christmas! <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, in my family I think that's kind of this funny thing, this <laughs> illusion. It makes me smile because it's like such a part of my childhood, especially in Christmas time. This waste, this self-indulgence! That's the witch, yeah. Where did you get all these things? Please, your majesty, we've were-
0: Give them. And if I might make so bold as to to drink to your majesty's good health. Who gave them to you?
1: Father Christmas! Father Christmas! What? (laughs) Okay. So maybe that takes me out of the enjoyment of it a little bit. I that, mean, I'm laugh- that, we're laughing. That
0: stuck me in the center of the enjoyment of it. That was amazing.
1: I don't know. It's just this poor creature what? begging for its life and then getting turned to stone, which apparently is death. But yeah, anyway.
0: Don't worry. As
1: Aslan, <laughs> all things. I don't think I thought it was so funny when I was a kid, but it, it has become funny thinking about it later. Any Anything about the book that... uh that just kind of sticks with you, whether it's meaningful or not?
0: Oh, I, you know, I, I think the, the big, the big, big themes are just, uh, Aslan, just that, uh, the surety that, that he is, how he's written and how his character for all of the kids and the whole entire story is just like, this is a place you can put your trust this is, and, I, and I love the way that is because that is that is the way I look at, at God in my life is like this is somewhere I can bank on and I can put my trust and good things will come from it. Yeah I just love um, love that you can just let your kids
1: be exposed to this sort of thing and you have no worry about what, yes. they, what they'll
0: take from it. Thank you for coming to the C.S. Lewis book club this week and uh, we're looking forward to jumping into Prince Caspian uh, next time with you. And we hope you'll read along and come prepared and also share your thoughts and ideas with us. Uh, I don't know exactly how they're going to do that yet, (laughs) but uh, email us, message us. We'd love to get your perspective as well as we talk through everything.
1: Yeah, if you'd like to get in contact with us, whether through email or um, a voice memo, if you have the voice memos app, you can uh, send this to our email at bookclub at mountainair.media. That's bookclub at mtnai Thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us. And we'll see you next week.